Have you ever felt that you believe something that most people would think is just plain bonkers? As a Christian, I must admit, I feel like that quite often, to be fair. We could go all sorts of directions here, couldn't we? The resurrection, the virgin birth, the creator of the world by a creator. But one of the beliefs that most people view as bonkers, so bonkers it might even be dangerous, is the Christian belief that the whole of the Bible is God's word. I think most people are okay with the fact that we believe that some of it is God-inspired, you know, the nice bits and the bits that they agree with. But passages like ours this morning, I mean, this is outdated nonsense, surely. To say that we believe that this is the word of God is on the verge of intellectual suicide, isn't it? These are not the sort of verses that you stick on calendars, are they? You know what I mean? Uh, And have at your home. And I must admit, I found this quite weird preparing it as we go through this whole uh, section. Now, this kind of passage is harder than most, but we must not buy the world's argument that it is irrelevant. It is not irrelevant, it just doesn't apply in the way that it used to now that Jesus has come. And verses in chapter 11, like 44 to 45, should alert us to the fact that this passage has to do with something deeper. It's got something deeper to teach us. Did you notice that there when Caroline read it out before? For I am the Lord your God, consecrate yourselves therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. And then down to 45, for I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall be therefore be holy, for I am holy. There's something going on here, isn't there? There's something deeper than we think. This has to do with holiness, reflecting God's character. And whatever else has changed in history, God's character has not changed even if these verses apply in a different way. Now, Aaron and his sons were told last week that they must teach the people about holiness, about cleanness and uncleanness. If God is going to dwell in their midst without them being destroyed, they're going to need to understand what it means to be clean and unclean. So what did God say? Well, the first thing we see... The the first thing that we see, we're going to get some of the other headings up at the same time here. Stuff that goes in your body could make you unclean. Stuff that goes in your body could make you unclean. That's really chapter 11. The passage splits the animal world into three sections. Things on the ground, things that fly, and things that swim. If you think about it, that's the way God splits up the world in Genesis 1, isn't it? On the different days, he makes those different things, splitting them up in the same three ways. And God tells them how to tell the difference between clean and unclean animals. Clean land animals have split hooves and chew the cud. Uh, That means they have hooves that are split in two, not paws, or hooves that aren't split in two. And it also means they only sort of lightly chew their food at first. They sort of swallow it, and then they bring it up later to chew again. I had no idea about this until I started looking into it this week. Sounds disgusting, but it's surprisingly common in animals. But anything that doesn't fit those two criteria is unclean. And also later on, anything later on in that chapter, anything that swarms, that goes around in sort of large groups, like uh, going different directions and swarming on the ground. But the big one for most people, really, of not to eat, was there were no pork-based products. That was one of the big things for uh, the Jews. So that's land animals. Clean marine animals have fins and scales, and anything else is unclean. Big one for those in Otley, no prawns, sorry. 
if you're in Ottomar, this don't worry, we're not actually going to go there. Uh, big ones for those in Ilkley, no lobsters, no oysters, no sturgeon caviar. Don't panic though, M&S caviar, uh, it's salmon, so that's okay. But basically that's the distinction. If it doesn't have fins and scales, uh, you can't eat it. What about birds or things that fly? Birds of prey are unclean. There's no criteria listed, but that's basically what we have listed along with the bat. Flying insects are then forbidden apart from a certain type of locusts. So John the Baptist was flying on his locust and honey diet. And the instructions go on to do what if you come into contact with those animals or their corpses. But what is missing, if you think about it, is an explanation of why. Okay, so those are the criteria, but why? Why is chewing the cud good and not having fins bad? And this question is very, very old. It's older than even the time of Jesus. And there have been lots of theories over the last 3,000 years about why this code was set out. Now, I've looked into quite a lot of it. If you want to chat to me about it afterwards, this is a conclusion, though. The best explanation seems to be in terms of deviations from the norm. So going away from the norm. God is a God of order and of life and of wholeness. He made this world to be a world of order and life and wholeness. If things deviate from that norm, if they cross categories, if they're not wholly one thing, then they're seen as disorderly. And it was being whole that made you holy. So if you sort of are a bit something and a bit something else, that's no good. So what matters is being linked with the idea of order and life and wholeness. And we'll see a little bit as we go through what, why these things are. As I say, the rest of the chapter deals with what was to happen should you come into contact with these things. Clean and unclean things had to be kept separate. And many things that uh, touched them would be unclean until evening. One of the amazing things that I've noticed as I've been reading through this is actually the, the power of a new day. The evening was the start of the Jewish new day. And much uncleanness that we read about here only lasts for a day. Actually, for most of the stuff that we're talking about, God in his mercy seems to have given a new day uh, for a cleansing effect on much of this sort of uncleanness that gets passed on. You start anew on a new day. As it says elsewhere in the Bible, his mercies are new every morning. But for some things, uncleanness meant cursing and destruction. It was to do with death. Well, that's all very interesting, but what's this whole system there for? Well, it was there to teach Israel that they were different from the nations around them. Just as there were categories of clean and unclean, so there were clean and unclean people. God uses this imagery with Peter in Acts. Not long after the church starts at Pentecost, a Gentile called Cornelius is told by God to send for the apostle Peter. Peter is given a vision of a sheet descending with unclean animals on. And a voice comes telling Peter to eat, but he refuses. Then the voice says, what God has made clean, do not call common. And three times he has the same vision. Then later on in the chapter, you'll see on the back of your notice sheet, Acts 11, 27 to 28. <clears throat> and as he talked with them, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call 
any person common or unclean. So Peter's vision here with the unclean animals, what is God using those things to teach? Well, God is teaching Peter about people, not about food. There's a similarity between clean and unclean, Jew and Gentile. But we see in Acts that in the gospel, both those distinctions are broken down. There's now no distinction between Jew and Gentile. Christ has broken down that dividing wall, especially the food laws, if you think about it, which divided the nations apart, divided Jew from Gentile. So Jesus has actually broken those things to show us that it's for the whole world. There was that separation, but in Christ it's ended. And that's what they're there to teach us. And that also means that as Christians and New Testament believers, we're no longer under Jewish food laws. In fact, Jesus has declared all things clean. Again, on the back of your notice sheets, you'll see Mark 7, 14 to 19. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear me, all you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about this parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. The bit in brackets is there in the original. I've not put it in brackets. It's there. It's Mark's commentary on what's happening. It means that we are not under any obligation to submit to Jewish food laws. Now, there's still some disagreement among Christians about whether eating blood is okay, but the discussion about unclean animals was settled before the Bible was finished at what's called, often called the Council of Jerusalem and recorded in Acts 15. You see, some people see restricting our foods as a sort of sign of superholiness. You get that idea sometimes. But restricting our foods is not a sign of superholiness. In fact, in Timothy, it's quite the opposite. Couldn't fit this one on your notice sheet, but it's 1 Timothy 4, uh, 1 to 5. Now, the Spirit expressly says in those latter days that some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Now we might choose not to exercise our right to eat what we want for the sake of reaching others for the gospel, because they might not eat certain foods, or not offending our brothers and sisters if there are certain people who have hang-ups. But we are free in Christ. Not that these food laws are irrelevant to the Christian, it's just that the application has changed. It's no longer about building walls and barriers, but about breaking them down. So stuff that goes into your body no longer makes you clean or unclean, and it no longer separates you from other people. So we sort of flip that entirely on its head. So that was the first point. Stuff that goes in your body could make you unclean. But Jesus has declared all things clean. Second point, stuff that comes out of your body could make you unclean. Well, 
What does this passage say here in 12 and 15? Well, there are several things in this category of things that come out of your body. Blood with childbirth, blood with regular periods, regular emissions of semen, irregular emissions of fluids from sex organs. Now, if you feel awkward hearing that, please do spare a thought for me preaching it. <laughs> um, but uh, we believe the whole Bible is the word of God. This is here to teach us something. Um, although this does feel weird slightly talking about these topics. So firstly, uh, blood with childbirth. Have a look at chapter 12. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel, saying, if a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean for seven days, as at the time of her menstruation. She shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then she shall continue for 33 days in the blood of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy, nor come into the sanctuary, but until the eight days of her purifying are completed. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean two weeks, as in her menstruation. And she shall continue in the blood of her purifying for 66 days. And when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb a year old for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. And he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be clean. Now it's important here to note that it is not childbirth that makes a woman unclean. It's the blood that accompanies childbirth. Now I can speak with authority here. My hand bled for several days from the nail marks from Caroline. <laughs> I didn't know me for several days, actually. Caroline told me I had to correct myself and say it, it, it sort of weeped a little bit. Um, but birth is bloody. Sorry if you don't like that image, but it is. And blood here makes people unclean. Blood in certain circumstances was a cleansing agent. Blood in other uh, circumstances, like here, is a polluting agent. Why? Well, blood represented life. So life fluid is cleansing to death. Okay, so things that are associated with death, you bring life to it. But losing life fluid brings you closer to death, if you like. So if you're losing blood, that's a problem. But if you're using blood to cleanse, it's bringing life to a death situation. The blood also makes the woman unclean, as with being on her period. Uh, we'll come to that in a minute. But whenever there is a flow of blood down there, it makes a woman unclean. Now, probably the most difficult issue, though, is dealing with the differing lengths of time, depending whether the child is a boy or a girl. Blood from a male child, or with a male child, makes a woman unclean for seven days, and then there are restrictions for her for 33 days. That adds up to 40. Blood from a female birth makes a woman unclean for twice as long, 14 days, followed by 66 days of restrictions, which adds up to 80. Why the difference? Well, people have tried to answer this in all sorts of different ways. It's true scientifically that bleeding tends to last longer after the birth of girls, but it's not twice as long. It's likely here that boys really are a special case. And I'm okay with that, not because boys are superior to girls, they're not. But the main function of the law, as we've been seeing, is to point us to Jesus, a male child. 
Thinking about it that way, if girls have been the special case, we might expect that the chosen special one to come would be female. Instead, boys are singled out in the law, pointing us to Jesus, who would fulfill all that. That's why we don't have to do this anymore, because it was going until the time of Jesus. He fulfilled it. So that is why there seems to be a difference between the two. And then there's a sacrifice at the end that she has to offer. There's been an irregularly long period of uncleanness compared to a a period. Um, And where there is deviation from the norm, as we said, there are issues. So at the end of the longer period of time, sacrifices are made. And the New Testament points out that Mary made the poor version of this sacrifice. Mary got involved with this as well. So that's blood from childbirth. There's also, comes out of us, blood from regular periods. Have a look at chapter 15, verses 19 to 24. When a woman has a discharge, and the discharge in her body is blood, she shall be in her menstrual impurity for seven days, and whoever touches her shall be unclean until the evening. And everything on which she lies during her menstrual impurity shall be unclean. Everything also in which she sits shall be unclean. And whoever touches her bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And whoever touches anything on which she sits shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until evening. Whether it is the bed or anything on which she sits, when he touches it, he shall be unclean until evening. And if any man lies with her and her menstrual impurity comes upon him, he shall be unclean seven days, and every bed on which he lies shall be unclean. Here we get a similar idea as with childbirth. The blood is seen as a polluting agent, so that things that come into contact with uh, things that are linked with the blood are affected as well. Though you notice again, they revert back to being clean at the end of the day. Men who come into contact with the blood accidentally are unclean for seven days too. We'll notice later on in Leviticus, if they deliberately lie with their wives when they're on their period, the rules are different, but that's later in Leviticus. And again, the issue is blood. It's not saying that periods are dirty or sinful. It's not saying there's something to be ashamed of, and it never was saying that. Do you notice that there are no sacrifices required It's not something that needs to be covered, if you like. It lasts several days because periods last for several days. The law gives us a standardised seven, but if they continue on abnormally or appear at other times, then we're given other rules. And these are the other rules. Irregular blood emissions. Have a look at 25 to 30 in chapter 15. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity... Or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge she shall continue in her uncleanness. As in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. Every bed on which she lies, all the days of her discharge shall be to her as the bed of her impurity. And everything on which she sits shall be unclean, as in the uncleanness of her menstrual impurity. And whoever touches these things shall be unclean and wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until evening. But if she is cleansed of her discharge, she shall count for herself seven days, and after that she shall be clean. And on the eighth day she shall take two turtle doves and two pigeons, and bring them to the priest, to the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the priest shall use one for a sin offering, and the other for a burnt offering. 
and the priest shall make atonement for her before the Lord for her unclean discharge. As we've seen before, if there are deviations from the norm, there are issues. As long as the woman here is bleeding, she is unclean. Now, I could go into more detail, but really in our context, it doesn't matter, so I'll spare you the details. But she is to count seven days. And because this has deviated from the norm, it requires a sacrifice at the end. Now, you might be thinking at this point, this is sounding a bit sexist, picking on women. But actually, there are very similar rules for men as well. So we see a rule for regular emissions of semen. Have a look at chapter 15, 16 to 18. If a man has an emission of semen, he shall bathe his whole body in water and be unclean until evening. And every garment and every skin on which the semen comes shall be washed with water and be unclean until evening. If a man lies with a woman and has an emission of semen, both of them shall bathe themselves in water and be unclean until evening. What's probably referred to here initially is something called nocturnal emissions, or what we often call wet dreams, which uh, non-sexually active males often have. In those cases, we see the sheets should be washed, and any clothes the man was wearing must be washed, and he himself must be washed, and he would be unclean until evening. After that, sex is mentioned, which requires that both the man and the woman get washed afterwards. Just as with periods, it's not saying that sex is dirty or sinful if it's in the confines of marriage. Sex is a wonderful gift from God. The issue here is actually whether there's been an emission of semen. And when life fluids come out of a person, that's what makes them unclean. That's what we saw with the blood. It's worth noting as well, though, that this definitely rules out any idea of temple prostitution. If you remember when we talked about the priests, we said that most of the Near East cultures, they were used to this idea of priests being prostitutes. Well, this doesn't work here, does it? Because actually having uh, sexual relations would make you unclean. You couldn't do that in the temple. Neither of these situations, though, required sacrifices. And as the emissions were short-lived, so the period of uncleanness is short-lived as well. But if they're irregular, there's a longer period of time. I think for time's sake, you'll just... Yeah. Elsewhere in chapter 15, we read that there are irregular ones as well. They have a longer time period. What's going on, though? Well, blood is associated with life. Semen is associated with life. The parts of the body that they come out of are associated with life. Expelling those fluids from your body is a movement towards death, in a strange sort of way, because life is coming out of you, leading to uncleanness. And if there are irregularities in those areas, it's a movement towards death in ritual thinking. It's a picture of a movement towards death because life fluid is being expelled uh, from the body in a way that's not normal, that requires sacrifice. So does this mean then that we can't come to church if we've got our period or if we had sex last night or this morning? Not at all. Because actually it's a picture of something deeper. When Jesus comes to this in the New Testament, he flips it on its head. So we see with that point there, stuff that comes out of your body could make you unclean, but it's what comes out of your heart that's the real problem. What Jesus says in the New Testament really is it's not what comes out of your sex organs that makes you unfit for God, but it's what comes out of your heart. That's a much bigger problem. Jesus said to a group of people, who are complaining that his disciples didn't wash their hands in uh, Mark 7. Again, it's on the back of your notice sheet. 
What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, pride, slander, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. So Jesus is, isn't saying, don't wash your hands before you eat, which is what they were, were saying, although that's not in the commandments. What he's saying is actually, if you think that solves your problem of being unfit before God, you've got it wrong. Jesus is saying that cleaning the outside of a cup is useless if the inside of it is filthy. He uses that imagery another time. The real problem is our hearts. That's much more serious than any sort of irregular problems with our sex organs. You see, I have a heart problem. You have a heart problem. And it's much more serious than my hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which I have. The problem is that our hearts are cesspits. That's our real problem. That's our real uncleanness. That causes much greater corruption than some bodily fluids. And it will take a much greater sacrifice than a few bulls or goats. Thankfully, the New Testament tells us that Jesus has made that sacrifice to cleanse our hearts, the centre of our very being. Again, speaking of the Gentiles coming in, Peter, he says, And God, who know their hearts, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Through Jesus, we can have our hearts cleansed by faith, because of Jesus' sacrifice. So if we really want to be clean, we need to put our trust in Jesus. That's what this picture teaches us, really, about real uncleanness. is inside, yes, but it's in our hearts. We need Jesus to cleanse those. And then our last point this morning. Stuff that grows on your body could make you unclean. But Jesus can make us clean on the inside. What does our passage say? Well, we're looking at chapters 13 and 14. And there we get a description of various skin diseases and moulds. I told you it was a bit of an interesting topic this morning, wasn't it? Despite the chapter's heading, this is not what modern medicine would describe as leprosy or Hansen's disease. That disease wasn't around in this part of the world in Moses' day. And it doesn't actually fit the descriptions of what they describe. The confusion comes because the Greek word for skin diseases is lepra. Uh, which means to peel. And it better describes the condition. The Hebrew has the same idea of that peeling. It's that peeling skin. Skin that was flaky. Could be various forms of eczema or psoriasis. But this not, has not so much to do with medicine. It's to do with uncleanness. It didn't matter really what the disease was. If you had symptoms that fit it. There are a few clues that this is not about medicine. Firstly... Fabrics and houses could be affected by this, and they too could be pronounced unclean. So it's not just about medicine for the body, this is something that could affect the fabric of a building. And even more confusingly, if the whole of a person was afflicted by one of these conditions, then they were pronounced clean. Have a look at chapter 13, 12 and 13. And if the leprous disease breaks out in the skin... So the leprous disease covers all the skin of the diseased person from head to foot, so far as the priest can see. Then the priest shall look 
And if the leprous disease has covered all his body, he shall pronounce him clean of the disease. It's a bit weird, isn't it? That makes no sense at all if we're merely talking about some quarantine measures and medicine. But what we're seeing here is that priests were not to be sort of old world doctors or mould and mildew busters. There are no cures given in this passage for those things. Only pronouncements of clean or unclean and sacrifices when someone was cured. There are no sacrifices to cure somebody. Do you see the distinction? The issue seems in part to be the issue of that wholeness we talked about earlier. With these conditions, you were partly one thing and partly another. You were partly flaky and partly not flaky. If you went wholly one way, that was fine. If you went wholly the other way, that was fine. But what you couldn't be was half and half. You couldn't mix categories. You were deviating from the norm. Therefore, you were unclean. And if someone was declared unclean, then the consequences were serious. Have a look at 13, uh, 45 to 46. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose. And he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. You had to wear clothes that were torn. Now, we're not talking trendy jeans here. You know, it's quite fashionable to wear torn clothes these days, isn't it? But these were clothes of mourning. You had to let your hair hang loose. Again, this is not sort of letting your hair down as we talk about it. That's the hairstyle of a mourner. Unkempt, they haven't looked after their hair. You had to cry out, unclean, unclean, if anyone came near, with your hand over your mouth, so that you say it, don't spray it, as you say at my school. Yeah, so you don't share fluids, yeah? And you had to live alone outside the camp. Your life as a social being was over. Later on we see lepers banding together, but this really shouldn't have been the case. Their life was to be a life of isolation in constant mourning. As one commentator puts it, they were to experience a living death. When you were pronounced unclean, your life was over. You were considered dead. And again we see that link with death and uncleanness. There's a provision of sacrifice if someone was healed... Again, remember, this is not Hansen's disease for which there was no cure. These conditions could clear up. God might hear their prayer and heal them. And in those cases, sacrifices could be made to restore the person to cleanness. It's not that they were automatically clean again. They still had to make a sacrifice to be moved from unclean to clean. Now, the sacrifices are often overlooked because there's so much other things going on in this passage. But chapter 14 focuses on two sacrifices, though more were made. There's a special offering for restoring the person with the skin disease. Then there's a special guilt offering for them. The special offering for restoring the person sounds very much like what we see or will see in chapter 16 for the Day of Atonement. Instead of two goats, a sacrificial goat and a scapegoat, we get two birds One is killed and covered in the blood of the other, and then is set free to fly away. The rest of the blood of the bird is sprinkled on the healed leper seven times, much like the blood of the goat is sprinkled seven times in the tabernacle. The imagery suggests a purification, with the uncleanness destroyed by the first bird and carried away by the second. 
The special guilt offering mirrors the ordination sacrifice of the priests that we saw last week. The blood is put on his right ear, right thumb and right big toe for the healed leper, devoting the whole of him to God. And it seemed that this sacrifice signified moving up a level, if you like, in terms of holiness or cleanness. The unclean leper is moved to a clean person in this one. And the clean person is moved up to a holy person in a similar ordination sacrifice. And here it is the guilt offering that gives this blood. Seemingly because God has been denied of his worship during their time of uncleanness. This guilt offering couldn't be swapped for money as the other guilt offerings could. It required blood. But four out of the five sacrifices that we saw in the open chapters of Leviticus are offered. All the sacrifices to do with the atonement for sin are done. The only one that's left out is the peace offering, the fellowship offering. As we saw when we looked at it last time, this was an optional voluntary one. But now that the leper had been restored, he can now do that himself. He's now clean in a way that he couldn't do before. He's returned from the grave of uncleanness and can now enjoy fellowship with God again. But the amazing thing that the Bible teaches is that Jesus can't just make us clean on the outside, if you like. But Jesus can make us clean on the inside. We could go to countless passages where Jesus heals lepers, where he makes the unclean clean. But how about this one? Speaking of the new creation, John writes in Revelation 21, 27. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. What does it take now to move from unclean to clean? Being written in the Lamb's book of life. It's those who trust in Jesus and his cleansing death on the cross that are taken from unclean to clean. Jesus can make us clean on the inside, as we saw earlier. That's what really counts. He can cleanse our hearts and make us clean. And that's the only way we can truly become clean. And this is a cleanness that counts. A cleanness that lasts. Did it strike you that in the passages that we've done, many things that make you unclean were just part and parcel of being human? What you eat, whether you're a man or a woman, things that happen then, where you live, what you come into contact with, death. If we're human which I take it most of us are this morning, we face a problem. Virtually being human makes you unclean. But Jesus offers us cleansing. We see again and again that Jesus is the one who can make the unclean clean. And if Jesus makes us clean, then nothing can make us unclean again. So if we're being offered that true cleansing by Jesus, then surely we'd be crazy not to take it. A cleansing that will last till the end. A cleansing that means that we can live with God forever in glory and not be consumed. And if that's what's on offer, then surely we'd be bonkers, wouldn't we, not to take it when Jesus offers it to us freely. Let's pray. Father, thank you for that offer of cleansing. Father, thank you that Jesus can make us clean. Father, if we are trusting in Jesus this morning, pray that you would remind us of that, that he makes us clean. And Father, pray that if we're not trusting in him, Father, pray that we would go to him for cleansing, just as we are.
And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to be finishing now by singing, Just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. Let's stand and sing.